You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. My guest today is Andrew Gifford, author and founder and director of the Santa Fe Writers Project. I had originally invited Andrew to Real Fiction to discuss his independent book press. If nothing else, I wanted to learn why it has the name Santa Fe when in fact he lives in Metro Washington, D.C. But what I quickly and dramatically realized in preparing for this discussion is that Andrew is Andrew Gifford of the iconic Washington, D.C. Gifford ice cream family. To be candid, I stepped into this having no prior knowledge of Gifford's ice cream or the passionate nostalgia for the ice cream shops. What I quickly learned is that for more than 70 years, Gifford's Ice Cream and Candy Company was associated with nothing but pleasure and happy memories for native Washingtonians. But Gifford's memoir, We All Scream, The Fall of the Gifford's Ice Cream Empire, takes us behind the happy facade, revealing elaborate and cruel schemes and some family abuse. Over the years, Andrew Gifford has worked as a caterer, a bookseller, a groundskeeper in call centers, as the wire editor for an associated press company, as a business writer for Oxford Intelligence, and as the development editor for a major academic press. When his memoir was released, Vanity Fair magazine said this about the book. It is a Southern Gothic for the DC area. Joining me in the studio to discuss his memoir and the Santa Fe Writers Project is Andrew Gifford. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So we all scream the fall of Gifford's ice cream empire is a memoir about growing up in the famous Gifford family in Washington, DC. And as we discuss your personal writing life and the work you do with Santa Fe Writers Project. Can you first tell us about when you started working on your memoir and why you wanted to write it? I think I've been working on it my whole life. I started in earnest about 2014, and there was someone who was trying to reboot the company at that point. Uh, there's always been someone who's trying to reboot the company. The first reboot was in 1989. There's six reboots going on now, or attempts to reboot it. So this person came to me in 2014, and I had sort of buried everything to do with, with my family. I just didn't want to talk about Giffords, and I didn't want to be a part of this. But he was gung-ho, you know, let's do this. And and I, I sort of thought, you know, there might be some money in it for me <laughs> if I could sell the recipes or just sell my name. So I started out from this kind of greed-focused, you know, area. Mm. And as as I worked with this person, uh, he started to do research on the recipes. And the recipe cards are these old, beat-up, chocolate-stained cards. You know, they got yes. the fingerprints on them. There, there's there's pictures online of them. But you had these recipes. I had them, and I had the cards. Uh, so so I had the whole I had the whole nine yards. But it turns out, as this guy trying to reboot it researched it, that this is just normal ice creams. There's nothing really different about it. And in fact, you can't do it. So there's things like the boil point is low. So so you, uh, you know, I, I guess the FDA uh, has rules now and it has to be a certain boil point. So to make the mix, you have to do this lower boil point that apparently will kill people now. So just to be <laughs> clear, the, the original book had more to do with a forensic analysis of the ice cream. Yeah. 
rather than an an analysis of the family history. Right, I think so. Oh, interesting. I, I feel oh, like okay. the story's the recipes, and and the recipes are they're a, they're a lie. They're very simple. There's nothing special. There's no secret to them. But the story kind of follows people who want to pay for the recipes. This is how Dad took a whole bunch of cash in the 80s before he vanished. And it's always been the secret of Giffords, but there is no secret. So I found the base mix, that's that's everything that goes in the candy and it goes in the ice cream, it's posted online. And it's been online forever. It's it's in it's archived from back into the nineties. It's always been there. Well let's let's just um hover here for a moment because we're having this conversation in Arlington, Virginia. There was a Giffords storefront in Arlington, Silver Spring, and I think in Washington, DC as well. No, so Lee Highway, ba- Bailey's Cross. Crossroads, Silver Spring, Bethesda. Okay. Uh, and then eventually there was one in Burke. And for anyone listening outside of the Washington, D.C. area, just to be clear, the Gifford ice cream dynasty, as it's really called, was considered iconic presence in Washington, and it was in business for over 70 years. When I did a little pre-research before you came in, I had mentioned to a few people that um, we're going to talk about your memoir about the Gifford family ice cream, and I couldn't believe the responses that I received. I mentioned that because when I read it and when I talked to people, there was this sense of nostalgia, and I know you get hit with this all of the time. What was it like for you growing up? What was it like for people who went to these Giffords ice cream shops in the past? Uh, when I was a kid, yes. when they were, I rarely went. <laughs> so as uh, in the early days I went, but towards the end, uh, we, we ate briars. This is this is the whole part of the book where we talk about poisoning the ice cream. <laughs> well, that's true. We that that you get into in the story, but um, what's remarkable is that you talk about the dysfunction that happens in the family. But it's really important for I think anyone who is not familiar with Giffords is that this was considered like a special treat mm. for children when the Kennedys were in the White House. Uh, they would order ice cream for Giffords and color the ice cream to match Jackie's dresses. This was a real Washington thing. So when you came out with your memoir and said there were things going on behind the scenes, uh, what what kind of reaction did you get from readers? People were upset. They still are. And I think a lot of Giffords, there's there's really kind of a sort of front and back, you know, so that that parlor is something that is amazing, that front parlor. You had a 100-seat front parlor in Silver Spring. You had the window surrounding you. You had the waitress in the pilgrim outfit swanning out there with her, uh, you know, with her silver tray. So things like that that you would never see again. In, so it was a performance. It was a performance, yeah. So a lot of, a lot of people are remembering that, and they're at that scarred table, eating ice cream out of glass and silver. And this is uh, this is what was served to everybody. And meanwhile, in the back, of course, you have all of the decay and despair <laughs> of the family. But all that's well hidden. And that's what we are introduced to in the memoir, the behind-the-scenes family dynamics that no one who was visiting the ice cream shop would have seen. So... I have, having read the memoir, it's fair to say that you had a challenging childhood. Yes. <laughs> and from a young age, your mother 
told you stories about your other family members. And some of the passages are difficult to read. And I don't really like to get into the line by line um, trauma, because that's something for the reader to work through. But just to say that one thing that stayed with me is that you were exposed to a real mix, a real brutal mix of fact and fiction when you were a, a young child. And you described TV and books as kind of a gateway into another world. Can you talk about some of the books that inspired you and how you managed to balance family life, which was really difficult, and find your own way as a child? I don't know that I did. I was an only child. So a lot of how I got through was just kind of creating my own world, you know. And right. and we grew up in Kensington, uh, and we backed up against uh, Rock Creek Park. So you have woods there. You have a place where you can run and hide. Uh, my dad did the same. Uh, so we were in the same family house there. So as a kid, he ran and hide, too, from his parents. Uh, whereas I think his childhood abuse was a bit more hands-on. Mine was a bit more hands-off, especially after dad left. Uh, they, I, I didn't exist in their eyes, I, I don't think. So when it came to being able to escape and embrace that fictional life, you know, and, and run around in those woods, I'd, I'd have all day. Mom would either be working after dad left, or when he was there, they'd be fighting, and they wouldn't notice I was gone till dinner. So at one point, your father was the head of the ice cream company, and he was working all day in the in the Bethesda shop or Silver, Silver Springs Spring, headquarters. The yeah. Silver Spring headquarters, and but at one point he he left. How old were you when that happened? I was uh, let's see, it was eight eighty four, so I was ten, and that's when he moved in to the Sil- Silver Spring store, we think. And then uh, he vanished, quote unquote, uh, in '85. So that's when, that's when the bankruptcy hit. It was about that time when you were on your own to a greater degree. You were exploring in the Rock Creek Park, and you were you, there was there were some scenes where you kind of almost story building with Legos, and yes. there were some particular books and television programs that that really kind of drove your curiosity. I was on my own. We had a whole library in the house. Uh, we had we had this nice house on a hill, uh, Bex Hill Drive in Kensington, and we had a whole room that was just the the shelves set in with uh, with all all these books, you know. And I I was left alone with them. I I kind of taught myself to read. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have much help from the parents on that. Um, you know, there's a book that you mention in the memoir that I'd never heard of, and it actually I think it influenced the title. It was Anthony Burgess. Anthony Burgess, The Land Where the can Ice ta- Cream Grows. Can you tell us a little about, about that book? It's a, it's a weird little children's book. Uh, and it's, uh, I've uh, forgotten the illustrator now. It's, uh, it's an Italian illustrator. And Bur- Burgess is doing the writing. He's the clock, clockwork orange guy, right? So, so you have this sort of twisted tale of these kids uh, in an ice cream shop. From a young age, you found books and television programs that gave you a sense of a different normal. Mm. Is, is that fair yes. to say? Yes, oh, absolutely. It was through books that you started to explore different, like a different dynamic, a different way of life was possible. It's the only life lessons I, I got. Mom, mom was deep into drugs and drinking and anger. 
And that's really all I had. So it was nice to see supportive, you know, like like I talk about the original Battlestar Galactica in the book, you know, and here you have Adama's the father figure and the commander of the fleet, and he has his son and all that. So, so you have these re- relationships that were alien to me in real life. I suspect one thing that readers are surprised by is the fact that this big empire existed and then all of a sudden money started disappearing. And as you describe it in the book, it almost seems like money is a, just part of the family pathology. It's there. It, it's earned. It's, it goes missing. Um, some employees had their pensions raided. And then as you mentioned, your father leaves town. In the first part of the memoir, your grandfather seemed like kind of a saving grace and then he takes a different trajectory as the story goes on. But he was actually delivering groceries to you for a while while your mother, as you describe, was kind of existing on Coors beer, cigarettes, and Excedrin. I mean, but at that point, did you have some psychological refuge with your grandfather? I don't know if I did or not. Uh, with With the whole family, I felt like a pawn the whole time. So my grandfather wanted to cash in as well. Uh, he he had a hand, I think, in the franchise scheme before dad left. And he, he at the same time he's doing that, he was suing mom and garnishing her wages. Uh, and you had no knowledge of that. And I had no knowledge of that. And he also knew that mom was getting money from dad while dad was supposedly had completely vanished off the face of the earth. But but my grandfather knew that there was something going on there. He was also taking, a, a, apparently, there's no proof of this, but Dad claimed he was sending me a birthday card each year, care of my grandfather, who was not, mm. not giving me the cards and taking the money that was in the cards. Yes, they were there as a family unit, and they are bringing food. They're feeding me. And my grandmother taught me how to cook, cook for myself because Mom wasn't doing it, you know. So I had to learn how to survive the day-to-day from them. But looking back, then as a 12-year-old, yes, they were a refuge. But the more I researched them and the more I kind of researched the motivations and what they were doing at that same time, no one is innocent. <laughs> yeah. No, that it, it gets complicated because, I mean, you were considered the heir to the the dynasty, the heir to the empire, and you were sometimes called the ice cream prince, which I have read that you hated that <laughs> that uh, term, but it's something that you grew up with. So your grandfather obviously knew that you were the heir, but was maybe, was he staying close to you for those financial reasons? I think is that, so. Is that what you were you had discovered? I think there was the hope for money. The money in the family is so strange. Uh, that became something, you know, as I tried to research the book, I tried to look at the money through line, but no one actually held on to the money. So if we're to believe various folks I talked to, dad vanished with between two to 10 million. Uh, when he died, he had nothing. He was mortgaged to the hilt. He didn't have a penny. And apparently he had sent a lot of the money to mom, who she may have had when she died, maybe around two to three million. She gave that away to friends. She gave it away. They didn't want the money. So I I could never find a motive. And even when it came to my grandparents, my mom's parents, you know, when it, they they couldn't hold on to cash either and yet were obsessed about it. 
So yeah, so so my grandfather was obsessed with, you know, this is going to be the big break. And he was always about the big breaks. And he always had some get-rich-quick scheme and would end up, I mean, he, he, he declared bankruptcy like five or six times after these schemes blew up. So he thought Giffords is going to be the big break. But then you also have this weird sort of flip side to it. He could have bought the name and the trademark. The first person who rebooted the company did so for $1,500. That's that's all it went for. So it was advertised in the post, fifteen hundred bucks, name, trademark, and the quote unquote re- recipe. This was the point at which was that the Dolly Hunt. Dolly Hunt did that. Okay, yeah. that was the Dolly Hunt, and she purchased what she thought were the original ice cream recipes. They were not the original rice cream recipes. No. And, you know, and, and back to the recipes. Yeah, there are no recipes. There <laughs> so are that's, no recipes. That's sort of what, what I discovered. And, and back to that 2014 rebooter and why I wrote the book, you know, I, I thought, can I sell these old, these old stained cards that, that have been in my family forever for, for a, a huge profit? But... You know, his own research showed that it was all bunk. And then I started to do the research. And yeah, it's there's nothing special about Giffords. The the nostalgia is about that waitress in the pilgrim dress with the silver tray. The nostalgia is not about the ice cream. If we did a taste test right now with the Giffords ice cream from back in the 70s and whatever premium blend is on, on the shelves now, you would pick the premium. You would never pick Giffords. Let me let that settle in for a moment. <laughs> Sorry, Washington. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot for native Washingtonians who have such reverence for the company. What you're describing is that going to Giffords was an experience. It was performance art, yeah. and the ice cream was almost secondary to the treat of going out for and yeah for because, dessert. And how can you know? So I, I'm I'm confounded by people who go on and on about this, like the obsession with Swiss chocolate ice cream and all that, you know, and it's. This is something that hasn't existed, that these people haven't tasted for over 40 years now. You know, how, how do they know? That's, that's, that seems odd to me. You know, that's, uh, and, and again, if, yes, if you're 10 years old and, and you're part of this performance art, as you say, which it is exactly that, if you're part of this kind of weird, glamorous front room parlor, uh, that, that's something that's stepped out of Brigadoon or something, you know, that, that is, that, that does make an impression. But I don't think it was the ice cream that... Uh, yeah, when you were looking to um, potentially sell the original recipes, um, as I recall, there were six original recipes in the Giffords lineup, and then did that expand Oh, yeah. And then it expanded to candies and and other things. But what's remarkable is that you you have a description of the I think it was the candy ladies, the candy mm-hmm. women who spent their entire careers making candy at Giffords. So there was something really special about that company for a lot of families who who worked for the company. That ties into the money because there was a, a close connection between the families who worked there for their entire careers and, and the, the business side of things. But I want to jump ahead for a moment because I, I see a lot of threads coming together in your life that are intriguing. At 18 years of age, you went to college in West Virginia and you started a publication called Purple Publications. So it's kind of like independent publishing was in your blood at a young age. And I'm kind of 
really obsessed with this because can you tell us about how what Purple Publications was and how it got started? It started in high school. So it was, uh, I, I just gathered short stories from my, my friends and that, that I had written, and, and I started doing little chapbooks. I, I actually did this, uh, uh, this kind of alternative uh, lit journal in high school because the, the normal lit journal wouldn't take me because they thought I was crazy. I may have been. So, so I, did, I did a very crazy alternative lit journal. So the, the high school lit journal was called Chips, and I, I put splinters together, and it was, yeah, I published anything. But Chips sent me. evolved into... Uh, well, Chips was the, the Chips official. Was the Chips official. was the official school journal, and then I did my own journal where I published all of the rejects and crazy people. And then I kind of spun out from there and just started making chapbooks, short stories, uh, novellas, uh, essays, pretty much anything, and had those printed and... But how did you how did you get them printed? <laughs> uh, in high school, I just did it on a Xerox machine, and in college, I found some printers. We're building up to the crazy printer story. Yeah, <laughs> let's talk about the crazy printer story. Am I allowed to talk about Nazis on the air? <laughs> yes, as long as everything is in context. <laughs> well, friends of my professor, uh, I had no idea. So, so yeah, it's uh, my 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 professor said you need to you know call these guys if you want this printed properly because I want it. Yeah something to sell, you know, so yes. I wanted nice proper bound things. And I'm on I'm on a college budget. I'm paying my way through college. I'm I'm working six jobs. I'm catering at night and I'm driving back here on the weekends to cater and and do things. So so I don't have much money and and my professor says, "Well, I got a guy who owes me a favor." And and I call them and they're paranoid and strange, but whatever. And I drive out there in a they're outside Parsons, uh, West Virginia. It is this sad little town on the river. And then you drive up into the mountains a bit, and there was uh, there was like a compound sort of thing. You know, there's a guard at the gate. He's covered in tattoos. He's got a gun, but they were expecting me, so we go through. And it's yeah, it's a bunch of skinheads, and they're wow. printing up pamphlets. But they have a whole printing press, and I decided to go along with it. Did they read your material? Yeah, they loved it, and it was you know, it's it's super liberal, crazy stuff, you know. So it's uh, this, so this was... they they really actually liked things that were on the margins. They weren't sort of necessarily just. I don't know. They had the tattoos. They had the guns. <laughs> <laughs> the guns and the tattoos. Okay. I, I look at that now and I think, oh, my God, that's I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have gone within a thousand miles. Of that yeah, place. no, it was a little <laughs> scary to read about that. And then I think you mentioned that you didn't go back. You asked them to come to they, I, you. Yeah, for yeah, I did not consult- like that compound because right. it was the right. seal gate behind me. It's dogs. And it's, you know, there's a guy with a machine gun there. You know, but they so had a press and, you, had a press, and yeah. you pub and you printed these stories and chapbooks. Yeah, chapter so we books. did like zine size. They were eight, yeah. eight and a half by 11, perfect bound. They did a great job. Those books and those stories made their way into the world. How did you distribute? One thing I wanted to ask, but how did you distribute those early works? At that point, it was just me. So I had a list of people that I sent a catalog out to and, and, and just would get some cash from them. And then around campus and yeah, it was all it was all hand sales. Uh, when I came back uh, here on the weekends and for the summers, I I'd go to record stores. It's back when you had record stores, and we just put it out front with the zines, you know, f- five bucks each, and I'd split it with the owners, you know, things like that. Okay, but one of my favorite parts 
the memoir is that at one point, a reader contacted you. I think she was in New York. You you referred to her as Rebecca in New York. She loved it and sent you a $10 bill. She loved the bobble. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it about the story? How did she find it? How did she find you? And what did that do when you re- for you as a kind of a writer or creative person when you found this person out in the ether who discovered your work and sent you a $10 bill that had to mean something? This was a parody of the Bible I wrote in my sophomore year of high school. And and I did the whole thing, so so it's you know it's not it's not huge. It's about two two hundred some pages. I guess that is big for a high school person writing a parody of the Bible, uh, but it's you know it's 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 zany and crazy and rude and and obviously written by a sophomore in high school. And this had somehow gotten out into the news groups. Um, so somebody had scanned it or whatever and put it out there in the old news groups, you know, the pre-internet days, right? Uh, so she had found it through that, and and I made sure everything was always branded. I've always been about branding. I still am. So so she she tracked me down because if you found it, then there's my address and phone number and all that. And yeah, she just sent me some cash, and she said she wanted some copies. And it's the first time... I really kind of, uh, you know, made made some real money from my writing. So I'd been selling stuff sort of a dollar here, a dollar there, and it was a lot of other people's stuff. This was this was mine. I'd written this, however embarrassing it may be. And eventually she, she kept ordering more and more. So she was doing something up there in New York where she was reselling this, I think. So I started to make some good money from her. (laughs) And uh, that sort of gave me a sense of, you know, this weird dream I have is possible. I I can write and I can publish and I I can make money at it and I don't have to go be a sad desk worker somewhere. Next week on Real Fiction is part two of my discussion with Andrew Gifford. If you enjoyed today's program, all episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platforms. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. If you enjoy independent media and programs produced on WERA, please consider supporting us by going to arlingtonindependentmedia.org and donating. The producers, engineers, and staff work tirelessly to bring you original, compelling content, and we love hearing from you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.